As I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen I'm never quitting on my mission, I'ma roll with what I'm giving Got some ambition, this new edition, filling positions Looking at the void in myself and feeling what's missing Better watch the way you going, better go in the right direction In the moment you stressing, but you gon' be counting blessings And I know that for certain, keep on working, open curtains Haters swerving, cause they ain't ready for your final version Whoa. I'm never gon' give up, give up Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, you're listening to the Tom Ficklin Show on WNHHLP 103.5 FM, your home for community radio. Good morning, everyone. This is Dr. Jesse uh, Turner, and I have some great guests today, and we're here to talk about the science of breeding, and really this idea, can there be a science of breeding? Nancy Bailey will be on our show today, and we ask ourselves, she asks, is there a science of history? Is there a science of math? Is there a science of everything? Is there a science of science? So for me, some of this has to do with equity. And I look back and I think, well, 170 years of not fully funding our schools brings us to this Groundhog Day moment. I'm gonna start us off with, we'll start our last uh, Dr. Stephen Krashen to introduce himself. Then I'll go to Dr. Bailey, go to Michael Strickland, and then to Rose Riez. Got some great guests. So, uh, Dr. Krashen, can you introduce yourself and share a bit of passion? Well, you got it right the first time. This is Stephen Krashen. I get nervous with Dr. Krashen because I'm not the real one. The real Dr. Krashen is my son, professor of mathematics. Can you imagine that? I'm a pale imitation. I want to be like him when I grow up. Anyway, I want to talk about my passion first. That's what I've been asked to do. And my passion has been a hypothesis which I've been working with for, gosh, the last 30, 40 years. We acquire language and develop literacy when we understand things, when we understand what we hear, what we read, etc. Not my idea. A lot of other people had the idea before I did. In literacy, some of you know Frank Smith, Kenneth Goodman knew all about this, and they were so absolutely correct. When I, I did it all in second language acquisition, then I, I discovered Frank Smith and Ken Goodman what a wonderful moment. The hypothesis was not just the same, but it was beautifully expressed, wonderful data, etc. We acquire language when we understand what people tell us and what we read. We learn to read when we get compelling, interesting texts that we're absorbed in. It's been said, who knows if it's right, the average person knows about 50,000 words in their first language. That's not 50,000 trips to the dictionary, look it up, do sentences, etc. It is absorbed, okay? We call this the comprehension hypothesis, and I'm going to take the rest of my two minutes and give you some quick language lessons. Two of them. Lesson number one. Wir werden jetzt anfangen, Deutsch zu lernen, und ich möchte voraussagen, dass meine Meinung, Deutsch ist eine sehr schöne Sprache. If I kept talking to you like that, would you pick up German? Probably not. But if I said, das ist mein Kopf, hier sind meine Ohren, ich habe zwei Ohren, und hier sind meine Zigaretten, meine Zigaretten, ich habe keine Zigaretten, Zigaretten sind nicht gut. If you understood the second sentence, not necessarily every word, but more or less, you acquire German, and here are the amazing, astonishing things. It happens whether you want it to happen or not. It happens involuntarily. We acquire language because we're made to acquire language. Chomsky says the language acquisition device is a mental organ. 
Our good pedagogy, in my opinion, takes full advantage of this pedagogy, pedagogies that don't work, which we'll talk about, don't take advantage of this at all and make life much more difficult for everybody, but financially very profitable for a few people. Okay, I have spoken. I'll behave <laughs> myself now. All right, Dr. Bailey, you're up. Okay, well, um, I have a blog that I write. Um, uh, I care deeply about public education. I believe it's um, incredibly important to our democracy. I'm terribly worried that we're losing our public schools. Um, I'm very defensive and um, support our teachers um, that work so very hard to um, learn how to do good teaching through their university training. And um, I was a special ed teacher for many years. I taught in several different areas of special ed, but for the purposes of this program today, I was a um, resource teacher in the area of reading um, for many years. I worked with students who had IEPs and reading disabilities in middle and high school. And um, I, I rarely had students, I think out of all the years that I um, taught, I had few students that were called dyslexic um, and am very concerned and um, just um, amazed that dyslexia is um, such, um, is, is used so commonly now. It seems like so many children are called dyslexic. And um, so that's a real concern that I have right now within, within reading. And um, so I, you know, care deeply uh, about how we progress and um, how children learn. I'm very worried about um, the push for little children to learn to read before they're ready. I'm bombarded. I think I'm being taunted by ads on social media um, that um, tell me about programs that parents start to teach their young children to read, to teach phonics to very young children. And um, I just worry very much that we're going to have a generation of children that just don't like to read at all. So um, that's pretty much where I'm at right now. And um, reading, I have a, a varied interest in, in public schools and the corporatization of our schools, but reading is um, one of my um, real loves because of my background and um, where we're at today. And Perfect. Thank, you, thank you so much for having me on this program with people who I respect yeah. so much. You're welcome. And uh, we're gonna talk about the science of reading and all these other reforms. But right now, I'm gonna take us to uh, a dear friend, Michael Strickland, whose mother was Dorothy Strickland whose research and work on balanced literacy is taking a major hit from the science of reading community. And I was a person who followed Dorothy for years and she inspired and informed my thinking. Uh, you know, so Michael, uh, but you're, you're, Michael's a, a voice in his own in terms of motivation and poetry and literature and diverse books and the Young People's Pavilions. Michael, can you introduce yourself and tell us about your passion? Hi there. My passion is children's literature. I love reading and I love books. My mom, who's mentioned Dorothy Strickland, uh, the late Dorothy Strickland, God rest her, taught me on her lap. Uh, it wasn't a standardized test. It uh, 
there were no metrics. Um, you didn't have to report any data, but I did in fact learn to read. I was taught that uh, books are cuddly, books are warm, books are your friends, books are cool. So my passion is children's literature and on youngpeoplespavilion.com, that's what I talk about. I talk about books. Interestingly, there could be a science of reading, sure. But what I see happening in English language arts instruction, uh, my, a lot of my background is in secondary. What I see going on is fundamentally unscientific, right? What does a researcher do? What does a true scientist do? Does he say, okay, I'm gonna create an experiment in order to make sure that I have the right numbers to justify a charter school's existence. Uh, I'm gonna do an experiment in order to continue selling a corporate product such as a standardized test. Uh, no, what a scientist does is look at data, transform it into information, and then he looks at variables and variations. He looks at margins of error, or she, of course. And uh, then that scientist also knows that what works in one setting or control group may not work in another. What might work in a high-end school may not work in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, in the inner city, in a low-income neighborhood. So therefore, a scientist would be flexible and constantly and recursively re-evaluating, not tied to anything like a corporate product or justifying a school's existence before a state legislature, which is trying to cut funding or move away from traditional schools to for-profit entities, right? That's not scientific. That's basically sales and marketing. So that's where I'm at. I love books. <laughs> a perfect piece, a perfect piece. And to keep us honest today, I brought in uh, a badass teacher, a bilingual teacher of 20 years from Willimantic and good friend, Rose Ries. Rose, can you introduce yourself and give us a little bit about your passion? And I know well, you're going to stand up for bilingual ed today. Well, Professor, Professor Turner, you, you've done enough. I've been in the system uh, 20 years. Uh, I've just hit 20. I'm going to become a Spanish reading interventionist. Um, I'm here especially to give the case uh, study example of this hardship that we're encountering because the right to read is the, um, the, the name of the legislation and right to read is uh, analogous to the right to work concept, right? Right? It's misleading, right? Because what, what's in that bill that passed in, in June 21st while we were resting is, is a consolidation of efforts and, and, a, and such overview and oversight that it's very constraining. There was a lot of pushback. So the National Council of Teachers of English um, had that phrase, the right to read. But their intent was different. It was about the choice in the democratic society, right? They, their position statement um, was in an alliance with uh, their uh, policy to uh, include people of color. So their position on the concept, concept of the right to read is about um, you know, anti-censorship, intellectual freedom, and reading of, with choice. And, and we're being misled by this title 
of this. And it's happening in Rhode Island, Illinois. I'm sure there's about five more states that have already um, adjusted that because now they've created a center for literacy that all districts will have to go through and have to be um, picking out five programs of five programs. And you need to have a waiver to be able to teach outside of those resources. This is maddening, especially with teachers who understand language acquisition, teachers who teach children of different cultures and different uh, socioeconomic backgrounds. Instead of giving us field trip money, they're giving us more money for more tutoring and more constraints of time. So you know where I stand with this. Your turn. <laughs> Tutoring is. I want to. I want to. I want to thank uh, Dr. Turner for letting me be on this panel because y'all are my heroes. I, I like to think that I'm a composite of all three of you, but not really. You know what I mean. Uh, and and Dr. Krashen, Evelise says hi. Oh, thank you, thank you. She's in. She's in New Haven. Oh, good, good. Those authentic experiences, Rose, that you spoke of are so critical. It is uh, maddening that experiential things such as field trips, as if reading could be isolated into, uh, I don't know, like tic-tac-toe and that's it, as if books aren't connected to uh, feelings, thoughts, ideas, experiences, visuals, uh, sounds, and what children go through and are going to go through in their lives. It is such a uh, false dichotomy. I see Jesse's back here. <laughs> yeah, I'm back. I, I, somehow the, the, the Zoom kicked me out there for a minute, but, but I'm glad that everyone picked up and continued talking. Uh, there's an elephant in this room in education reform, and it's not us. Uh, it does connect to the things that Michael said about profits and things like that. But for 170 years, black and brown, poor and special education children and immigrant children have never received full equity. It's always been a case in American public education. And, and we can document this by research. Right now we spend $20 billion more on our wealthy schools than our poor schools. So Dr. Krashen, Stephen, could you tell us about the connection to poverty and, and test scores? Yeah, let, let me back up a little and make it even stronger. The research on reading, we call just self-selected reading for pleasure, which is, I think, the core of all ways we get better in reading, has exploded in the last year, in fact. I've been writing papers and letters saying this, reading for pleasure means more spelling, grammar, writing. It also means you know more. Readers who read more know more, and they know more about everything. And the research confirms familiarity with popular literature, self-selected books, is a much better predictor of how much you know than your grade point average. It beats study everywhere people have looked at it. So it's that. Not only that, people who read more, as we know, understand others better. They have what's called empathy because they have led so many lives. The big barrier is access to books. And the way we're going to solve that is our enthusiastic and growing support for libraries. Uh, let me underscore the name of Keith 
Curry Lentz, L-A-N-C-E, Schools with Better Libraries and a credential librarian who's going to help kids get books and all that. Kids read better over and over. So we have to bond with the librarians. And in terms of bilingual education, the only way this is going to work, what we found for bilingual ed and for heritage language is that the best programs have lots of entertaining reading for kids to read. The ones who develop their heritage language are the ones who develop a reading habit in the heritage language. It's the only, and in terms of equity and money, it's the only place we're going to get books because the economy has gone crazy and it's gotten worse. Not just poor kids, everybody now needs libraries. We can't afford any other, but this is the only thing we can afford. So yes, it all boils down to equity and equity is dependent on our knowledge of how powerful uh, free voluntary reading is, reading that we select ourselves. I wanna give you one piece of evidence that I hope you can relate to. My story, because it's the same as your story. When I was in secondary school back in Chicago in the old days, we had language arts. We had English language arts. We had to read English lit, British lit, I read all the books. I passed all the tests. I can't remember a single book that was assigned that I read, and neither can you. On the other hand, I remember all the books, all the science fiction, all the wonderful John R. Tunis baseball stories, all those. I remember all of them. And I still discuss them with some friends of mine. They were my language arts program, true, absolute literature. We find them in the library that will give us equity or at least a big step toward it. Okay, I'll relax now. <laughs> excellent, excellent. So when we're, when we're looking at this stuff, we, we can produce readers. I think it's called A-literacy. Readers who can read, but choose not to read. Mm-hmm. And that might be what we're in danger of. Uh, Rose, could you tell us a little bit about what bilingual students are, are facing in Willimantic and will the science of reading save them? So the, 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 um, the assault to the census is that um, in, we, we have been subjected because of our status, we have been subjected to the pilots of these, uh, you know, the Connecticut model of literacy Right, we've been subjected to a lot of those interventions because, because of lack of equity, our money is dependent upon how we are cooperative with all these experimentations, right? So I'm, I'm in a conversation with one of the facilitators and I go, you know, you could create parrots. They will reiterate those sounds, but if those words have no meaning, then that's half of their, their, their literacy. That's half of their, their approach. And Many, many turns later, word had it, and it was brought back to me that this particular facilitator said, it doesn't matter that they don't understand what they're reading, so long as they read it right. And I was aghast. Yeah. I was, so, so this is all about, this is about monkeys and numbers and meeting a particular goal so they can stay relevant. So these particular individuals stay relevant and control the masses in that way, right? And I'm looking at this council right here, the, the makeup of the Connecticut council, there's not one piece of, of uh, consideration for language learners, emergent bilinguals, nothing in here, nothing. It's as if we are going to fall under the special ed category. I can, um, 
I can put the link to this uh, timeline of key steps required by the right to read legislation. This is critical for us to understand because this is where they have the gotcha moments, you know? So now I'm limited to five resources. I need my district to write, uh, ask for a waiver uh, if I wanna pick a sixth resource, um, then I have to uh, be uh, using the assessments that they have uh, agreed upon. And, and I, feel, I feel the constraints, I feel the constraints. And so they're not looking for critical thinkers, they're looking for producers, right? Perfect. Okay. So, so let me, bef before I go to Nancy, uh, there's a reason I said this was Groundhog Day. Yeah, you need to explain that because that, people like groundhogs. <laughs> well, there's no science behind the groundhog. But if you think about the reading first schools where McGraw Hill made billions of dollars, reading first schools spent $6 billion, picked five scientifically based reading programs intensely based on phonics, <clears throat> phonemic awareness, fluency, and, 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 and they had six years of this and they had to diligently follow the, the, uh, the curriculum and be scientifically based. And what did we discover? Well, by 2008, we found out six years later, $6 billion later, that those children in those schools lost comprehension. That's what we found out. And that's why there are no reading for schools. So I said, this is Groundhog Day for the simple reason are we not doing this all over again? Is that not that? So Nancy, could you give us a little uh, take on your view of scientifically, uh, the science of reading? Well, I think the science of, <clears throat> when, when we speak of the science of reading today, what most people are referring to is phonics. And phonics is easily put on a computer for online programs. It's you know somewhat similar to the worksheets that teachers tried to avoid um, teaching. It's, it's just kind of mundane work that children do. Um, and um, these online programs are very prevalent now. Amplify is one um, that is promoted very much. And um, the people who are really um, critical of teachers um, who claim that teachers aren't teaching reading correctly um, are on doing podcasts for Amplify. Amplify was the Rupert Murdoch program that was started that, you know, wasn't considered very good. It was purchased by uh, Lauren Paul Jobs, um, who, um, you know, I'm not sure if they changed it any, but the teachers in, um, in Tucson uh, decided that it, it wasn't really um, developmentally um, appropriate and, um, and yet it still is promoted like crazy and Common Core is still a part of that. Oh iReady is another computer program. And I think we know where this is going. You have computers and yet poor children don't have access to libraries. Um, they're put on Chromebooks and um, they you know, don't have access to books. We, we highlight Dolly Parton for giving books to children, which is wonderful. And yet people don't seem to understand how important it is for children to have access to books later on by having libraries in their schools. So you have all these poor schools now, a lot of charter schools that just don't even have access where children don't have access to books or to good librarians as a teacher. 
A librarian was my best friend. I always got advice from them. I learned about the internet from my high school librarians who um, you know, really gave in-service that was, was phenomenal. Um, so, you know, I think um, by denying children libraries and denying them access to books and balanced literacy, they're being pushed onto computers more and more. And um, it's, it's just my fear that that's where we're going in education, um, especially right now where we see a shortage of teachers. It's not really a shortage um, that's, um, it, it's, it's an intentional shortage, I would say, where teachers have been pushed out and, um, and are being replaced with facilitators or tutors, like Rose was mentioning, tutors. Um, there are a number of nonprofits that are pushing tutors into our schools now with the teacher so-called shortage. And, um, you know, teachers, they, they've, they've just got so much on their plate. They're, they're having, you know, such little support, which I think is also intentional. And um, I think the drive is for um, online learning. And um, we see a lot of cyber schools popping up. And, um, you know, despite the fact that parents didn't like these schools during the pandemic, um, these online programs, I'm not sure they realize that schools are kind of becoming more and more online. So, um, so those are the concerns I have when it comes to reading. I think that the science of reading um, really is, is very much connected to the push for the corporatization of our schools through online instruction. Absolutely. So if we come to that piece, I want to come back to uh, Dorothy Strickland. So being a student who read the work of Ken Goodman, Yetta Goodman, Frank Smith, Stephen Krashen, uh, I also read the work of Dorothy Strickland. She was uh, the president of the New Jersey Reading Association. I frequently would attend any session that Dorothy was at. And she talked about whole to part to whole. And so Dorothy never ever said no phonics. She said, hey, you need to use real literature. You can work on some things in isolation if you needed to, but you must come back to real literature. That's balanced literacy. Balanced literacy does not mean no phonics. And I, I <laughs> what hurts me the most because Dorothy Strickland, Michael, your mother is one of my heroes. And I'm hearing people really uh, miscategorize the work of, of your mother. Uh, Michael, can you tell us about, you know, what would your mother say today if you can think about that? <laughs> yeah, pretty straightforward. Uh, after my brothers and I went to Cornell and went on to grad school, I remember just going back to her and saying, okay, mom, so what did you do? You know, why did we make it? And she said, uh, it wasn't a scientific, you know, science of reading approach. She said, well, you, I spent a lot of time taking you to museums. I spent a lot of time reading with you. Uh, we spent a lot of time on activities. We integrated everything together. So." when it came time for us to go to elementary school, high school, college, so much of it was seamless. She used to talk a lot about families, schools, communities, interacting, essentially a triangle, something that's missing now. 
I uh, see a comment here. Yeah, I'm not afraid of the computer use from uh, Rose. Exactly. I'm not afraid of it either. Um, just like my mom was never against phonics. In fact, she wrote a book and a second edition, Teaching Phonics Today. Uh, phonics itself is not a problem any more than saying there is a science to reading <laughs> is a fundamental problem. They're quite unscientific about it, as I mentioned in the past. So uh, what we are doing is we're missing out on the human element. Um, the problem with going overly to digital and digitized learning is essentially it comes down to greed, right? It's a cheaper way to do things. Uh, there is nothing wrong with online learning. In fact, online learning helps many kids. There are children who are being bullied in school. There are children with sensory and auditory issues who can't go into a huge building filled with hundreds of students, and then they get online and they start getting straight A's. However, there are also many students who live in homes where there's fighting all the time, where there are drugs and alcohol, where there is still a digital divide that still exists. There's an expression, oh, the kids are always on their phones. Well, uh, research doesn't bear that out. Not every kid has a phone, not every kid has access. And even if they do have a phone, are the teachers, actual human beings trained in things like mobile learning, how to reach children who are on their phones as opposed to being on other types of devices. So what my mom would uh, respond to is the corruption. We're looking at greed because in and of themselves, none of these concepts or ideas are inherently bad. But as you noted, she would talk about balanced literacy, a balanced approach where you immerse students in things, where they explore and experiment. And then of course, reading language, language acquisition, language development, and ultimately learning, right? Notice I didn't say performance because this idea of an achievement gap is also flawed. You know, you, it's like I said, a standard, Jesse, you need to be an, an Olympic sprinter by next week. And then when you don't make it, I tell you now you're a failure, right? So there's not an achievement gap. There's a support gap. There's a gap in saying teachers are professional human beings, just like your doctor and, uh, other professionals are given ideas, latitude, discretion, and of course, support and training. Just so you know, I do in fact like the Danielson framework. We could work with something like that and then go from there. So Professor Turner, before you go, yeah. I, I wanna let you know that in Connecticut, it's really, it's, it's really mind boggling about how, how there's these missteps taken because, because the Black and Puerto Rican Caucus since 2012, through Malloy 2016, you know, the great education reform years, um, applied this uh, right to read concept with addressing opportunity gaps and equity in public schools. I mean, they're taking all our, our principal ideas and then looking for that silver magic bullet, like, because they were lobbied, because they were presented a package and they were worked on and worked on. It's like when you go to the casino and you hit those slots, you're not winning, but when you do win, you win big, right? So you keep trying, you keep trying. Why do kids keep asking? Because there'll be a yes sometime, right? So there are these lobbyists and they came and they presented and then they used our principles of equity and opportunity and um, just the freedom to, to learn. I was, I was, what? Oh, you can Nancy? go by, Nancy. Go 
I, I was just um, also thinking with what Rose just said, and also Michael and, and talking about immersing kids in um, a wide variety of um, subjects and areas. Um, and, and thinking about what we've done to schools for poor children, we've just bombarded them with reading and math. We have taken away the arts. We've taken away music in some places. We've taken away geography. I mean, and science, um, we talk about STEM, but what kinds of access do, do children really have to other subjects? It seems like um, they're just denied a lot of things that um, help them to be good readers. Um, you know, it's not just reading, reading, reading and phonics, phonics, phonics. So, um, you know, I just um, was struck by that, what, what you both were talking about um, and, and the equity issue. Um, when I hear the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation talking about equity, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around that. Um, it's, you know, and, and greed and um, changing what's happening in schools to reflect the corporate drive, the, you know, including things like social impact bonds, where they're going to invest in schools to get a return on their investment and um, to do all these things that just change the dynamics of how we teach children and what they learn. And that is, I think, particularly scary um, to me, how we're, we're just really changing the whole way our school systems work. When people say reinventing schools, I'm, I'm always worried about that because I, I don't think they're reinventing them in the way that I think is a good way. And um... no, makes perfect sense. I've just returned from the European Reading Conference in in Dublin, in Ireland, and there I did a presentation about our CCSU Literacy Center. And one of the points I made was in our center we provide free tutoring. Uh, over 5,000 students over the past 20 years for uh, millions of dollars worth of free tutoring because we have a practicum that uh, our teachers uh, will have to teach stu students and I supervise it. But in any event, uh, the people looked at it, it's a brilliant center, beautiful. Uh, we follow the child, that's who we follow. So we believe every child is different. Uh, so we talk to the child, we talk to the parent, we talk to the teacher, uh, we provide a rich context and, and wherever this child needs to go, that's where we're gonna go in that sense. So differentiation is, is normal, miscue analysis is normal, uh, the balance that, that Michael talked about is normal over there. We, we don't have a one size fits all. But I, I wanted, when I mentioned that, to, to the audience, I also said our students to our center come from 30 surrounding communities. Some of them are affluent and, and many of them are poor. And, and I said, the only place they get equity is in our center. Mm. Because in their schools, 20% reduction in library librarians. Mm. Uh, my wife just retired from a, a magnet school no librarian, no music teacher, no art teacher. How that's a magnet school, I don't know. So that that concept, and, and what was interesting, there's a teacher in the audience, you know, we always hear from the Finland teachers in Europe, and she said to me, uh, Dr. Turner, wouldn't you consider that unethical? 
And I said, yes. And then another teacher from the Netherlands, of course, says, well, you know, we can't change the home, but we can give every child uh, a quality education when they come through the door. And not that Europe's perfect. But what, what, what we have here is 170 years of inequity. I don't need an education reform that can't deal with the uh, uh, inequity. I can't, I don't need an education reform that, that says to black and brown and special education children and poor children, you're not gonna get all the books. You're not gonna get all the libraries. You're not gonna get all the bells and whistles. You're gonna get a lottery. And we know that <laughs> we most people lose the lottery. But uh, let me just go back to Stephen again, because Stephen and Jeff McQuillan, that, that access to books, Stephen, remind us, because I'm cognizant, I did a librarian show where we talked about a 20% reduction in librarians, and you know that wasn't in affluent communities. You know where those communities that lost their librarians are. Stephen, could you tell us about that? Yeah, I'm gonna uh, take advantage of this, but, and this time by bragging a little bit and whining at the same time. Um, I wanna talk about the science of reading first. The science of reading, I've submitted this as letters to the editor at least 50 times. I'm very successful in getting letters published in general. <clears throat> I get about, oh, uh, five, 10% published, which is double what people get. But when I talk about phonics, it's zero. You can't get anything past them. Science of reading, here's what the research says. If you bring in intensive phonics instruction, the kids do better on pronouncing words presented in isolation if they're regular. They don't do better in reading comprehension. This was discovered by Elaine Guerin, repeated over and over again. It's as if it never happened. In terms of uh, phonemic awareness, I looked at the uh, National Literacy Surveys of this. They found all these studies. I found only one study where phonemic awareness training actually worked. The rest of them, they didn't, okay? And it was 15 kids learning to read in Hebrew. That was it. That's the, that's the entire research basis. I've submitted that as a letter at least 25 times. Um, in terms of, I got one more point to make. Oh gosh, uh, this growing old stuff. I don't know. It's been tough. Um, Oh, I got to think of the more. And anyway, I keep submitting the counter evidence again and again to Forbes, to all the magazines, and it gets absolutely nowhere. I'm going to start counting on you guys to repeat this. Jeff McQuillan, thanks for mentioning him, have been doing, has been doing this as well, coming out with exactly the right data. The data is there. We have published it. We have submitted it. It does not get in. It does not get circulated. This is the problem. There is nothing behind the science of reading. It is a fabrication and simply, I'll give you a technical term, which I've chosen very carefully, pure and utter bullshit. <laughs> well, we are a family radio station. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, uh, uh, let, me, uh, let me come back. Oh, I had one more point. I'm sorry to back the other one up. Uh, I've, lately, there've been a lot of uh, publications from tech people saying, we must have more computers in the classrooms. Otherwise, kids can't do their homework. <laughs> so this is a virtue. This is a mitzvah, okay? No, if you look at the research on homework, okay, you find homework is not very successful. Uh, Alfie Cohn's book on homework is absolutely brilliant. 
comes to the same conclusion. There is no effect for homework in elementary school, tiny effect in the upper grades, but it disappears when you do the statistics right. The time, but there is a lot of research that says if you give them better libraries, more chance to read and books, they get better in all subjects. Not much interest in that. Okay, I'll behave myself. No, no, no problem. Wasn't, wasn't that what they found with reading first also that, you know, children were able to pronounce letters and words, but they just really couldn't comprehend very well. And I must say in my own defense, I include that in my surveys. Right. Erin was right. And, and yet we, you know, the, the so-called support for SOR is, is promoted by people who continuously cite the National Reading Panel. Continue, you know, they don't talk a lot about reading first because that was so scandalous. People seem to forget the scandal behind reading first. But um, the MPE, the National Reading Panel, is repeatedly cited, even though you had people like Joan Yap and, and Elaine Garan and, and Stephen, I'm sure you were there too, and Susan Ohanian. So many people brought to light the scandalous. The Gotta scandalous say something about the National Reading Panel. <laughs> when they said, when I, I said that your survey found only one study that showed uh, phonemic awareness worked, their response, and this is in the Reading Research Quarterly, well, that may be true, but maybe if there were more studies, the results might be different. That was their response. <laughs> Pathetic. So we, perhaps it's not really the research that matters, but how much money you can make off our children. 53 okay. million children in our public schools. They're 53 million programs, 53 million pencils, 53 million everything there is. So is Professor Turner, for the yeah. Right to Read Act, they're going to allocate $12.8 million. Not even, it's, 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 it's a joke. Rose, so in, in terms of we spent- uh -huh. I'm we sorry, spent, Nancy. Who is yeah. behind the Right to Read Act? Who is, oh, you, who is behind, okay. Yukon, NIAG, Michael Coyne, the Literacy Center. Um, who else? Uh, literacy. Who are these people? Are there corporate people behind it or partnering with it? No, these are academics so far. But okay. you know, they they will they will have a relationship with some particular publishing house, right? Because they're they are going to allow for five types of resources, and then there's going to be a, a clearinghouse where districts have to go through. Ah, you understand? Yes. I just sent you the timeline of the creation of the council and how all districts will have to go through that council and get evaluated and the list of, of uh, acceptable uh, assessments, you see? It's getting, it's getting factorized, right? So. And, yeah. and standardized and then aligned, everything's aligned. And, and there's nothing in their, in their language that accounts for uh, emergent bilinguals, multicultural experiences, language acquisitions, um, background knowledge. Um, yeah, it's frightening. Well, this, I think also with special education, um, you know, years ago when they reauthorized the original uh, special ed law uh, to IDEA, they put children with disabilities into the general ed class. And so now you have parents screaming 
for teachers who understand their children and teaching them how to read and also special programs. They want all children now to get the Orton-Gillingham program, which really doesn't have any research behind it. Um, and, you know, it's, it's um, sad to me to also see the push for very young children to be getting phonics programs so young. If you see pictures now of classrooms for preschoolers and kindergartners, you see on the walls, you know, um, charts of phonics sounds and, you know, there are no characters or no uh, yes. cultural books or, or anything. Um, Nancy, when we were doing like our data team meetings and all that, that kind of stuff and, and my one kindergarten teacher, you know the colors, right? Red, yellow, green, right? And half her class was in red and it was the first semester of kindergarten. I go, that's not tier three, that's your tier one. That, that's not an intervention need, that's just your reality. It's like the, there's, this, there's this phobia against what does poor look like, okay? What does, what does uh, not having access to a computer look like? It looks like a special need. No, no, no. It may offend your you know, middle-class sensibility, but this is your reality and everyone's teachable so long as you treat them with respect, right? Hi there. Because for the children, it's a social process. For mm -hmm. the teachers, it's an, a technical process. Hello, appreciate yeah. the word, word that's been said. I've been hanging on it. I look forward to, uh, there are still multiple platforms that will publish what we're saying. They're still out there. A lot of the big corporate uh, click farm type places don't necessarily want to hear this, but uh, I look forward to doing some writing about this and just wanted to uh, kind of put an umbrella on it. It's a sad one, a tragic one, but um, I've been looking at various statistics because what we're talking about is, you know, systemic racism, systemic classism, and fundamental inequality. And one of the stats that's been popping up for a while, for example, the gap between the rich and the poor is worse now than prior to 1964. Uh, there's that one. That's pretty horrible. And also statistics, uh, many other statistics, such as the number of Black tenured college professors hasn't changed since 1971. So those systemic issues are still there. <laughs> They're just coming out in different formats, different ways. Uh, the Ku Klux Klan isn't marching with white robes and hoods. However, they are storming the Capitol under different names like the Proud Boys. And oh, what we're seeing going on with these, oh, various, you know, tragedies in our schools, is literally the same thing that's been going on in our, our nation, as Jesse points out the whole time. It's unfortunate, but I do know that we have a voice and this discussion needs to continue. And I'm gonna be part of uh, putting it into formats because uh, I am optimistic we shall overcome. We, we, we shall, we shall. Silence is not acceptable. Um, a piece that, that I think, because we're coming down to our last eight minutes of the show, so I'm going to be asking everyone to give a final comment. But really, I have to go back to what was said at the European conference. I forgot to tell you that the professor from Ireland said, shouldn't someone be in jail? <laughs> shouldn't someone be in jail? So 
I have taken the position. I don't want to hear about any educational reform until you fully fund all our schools. Until you do that, because we know that these reforms right now are not going to happen to our most affluent schools, our most affluent white schools. It will not be there. They will have librarians. They will have music. They will have art. They will have books. They will have access to books. They will have it all but our poor children. So on, I, I'd like us to, to take a, a, a minute each to coming down. I'm gonna start with you, uh, Rose. And, and, and really what I, I wanna know is why not equity? Go ahead, Rose, you're up. Why not equity? Can't we give is, that reform a shot? Is this, is this a trick question? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, it's, it's to me, it's the inconvenient truth of public education in America. It is think, built upon an immoral foundation. I, I think there but needs to be more transparency and a frankness as to what our, our purpose in, of public education is at this moment. I, I, I went in as a guerrilla uh, with the intent of, of bringing up, you know, raising my emergent bilinguals and taking them out of the, uh, the um, the def deficient, defic deficiency category, um, tapping into each per person with their brilliance. And it was a, a social process. And I had every confidence in the world that they would eventually learn to read what mattered to them. And, and they would have clarif clarifications of their values and hope that they had empathy enough for uh, the future. Um, so the question is, what is the purpose of our public education? That's the piece, and what is it? Maybe it's to indoctrinate. Maybe it's to produce uh, new workers for the factory. Not certain. Uh, Nancy, can you give us? You know, do is it equity first? Can we really judge an education reform when some people get the full medical vaccine and some people get the half dose? Well, you know, you can't deal with equity and reading. Um, there's, there's. No books to ban if you don't have any libraries, um, you know, so you have to take you have to, I think, look at everything that comes out and question um, how it's affecting children in the classroom and in their public schools. Um, you, you know, you have to question how many teachers of color we have in our schools um, and, you know, are they being supported? Um, and do we have teachers that are qualified to be teaching? You know, it's just, there's so many, so many issues right now. Um, and I think they all come down to equity because um, as you said, Jesse, we have poor schools and we have wealthy schools and the wealthy schools don't have these problems. Um, I fear a day when our wealthy schools will be schools that people pay for, that will be private schools and then our poor children will go to crummy charter schools where they have just online. And, you know, I'm not, I'm, I, I work with computers. I know computers have an awful lot to add to education for children. So I'm not anti-tech by any means, um, but it's a supplemental tool. It's not the teacher. And we need really good teachers in our schools. We need great university programs that aren't affected by corporations who tell us what we should do and how equity should be 
uh, done in our schools. Um, we're the people, we know what that should look like and um, we need to fight for it, I guess. It's it when the other comment I had from the lady from Finland in Ireland, when I said, we have a school to prison pipeline, she said, no, you have a policy to prison pipeline. Yes. Stephen, can you tell us, can we, can we fix any of these things without equity? No, we can't. And one of the best books on this is Hunger Games. The idea behind Hunger Games is that you have a competition, you win, your school is great, everyone else doesn't get anything. Right. Nonsense. All schools should be funded fully. There shouldn't be any competition, winners, losers, etc. Um, time to insert a little personal philosophy, radical idea. Everybody's different. We have different talents, different abilities, different things, etc. School is should be a place where you help you help discover what your talents are, and people help you develop them. Yeah. That's my thing on equity that suddenly happened to me in graduate school where it all came together, where other teachers, other students, everybody was pulling for everybody to develop their own personal interests. That's what we need to do. Yeah. And Michael, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the Children's Pavilion. I've, I've looked at your website, I've followed your work over the years, and you truly present a rich, diverse, uh, literature selection, culturally relevant books are uh, always in your line. Uh, can, can you tell us about the importance of culturally relevant literature and pedagogy? Absolutely. Uh, my mom always used to talk about the fact that when children see themselves in books, they feel more connected. When they feel more connected, they're more motivated to read, to learn, to study, and school as well as other learning environments, feel like places that are meaningful. It's back to that idea of a balance, things being more seamless. I love everything here that's <clears> being said today. Of course, computers aren't a bad fact. Many, many years ago, before it was cool, my mom had wrote a book, written a book called uh, Use of Computers in the Teaching of Reading. So uh, the technology itself is handy, mm -hmm. the tool. <clears throat> now is this uh, corporatization kind of taking over in order to push an agenda, which is basically greed. And um, culturally relevant books are just at the core of what should be going on. Shakespeare is great, but really all the uh, classics are doing is taking universal themes and putting them into words. Those universal themes can be found across all literature. And when students start to see the same themes in that culturally relevant material, it's easier for them to understand Shakespeare. It's easier for them to understand Catch-22 or Catcher in the Rye or The Big Sweat and other books that have been part of our American culture. As I think about that topic, it might <clears throat> seem like a small thing, but that's what's been coming to mind. We've covered the global issues very well but don't forget the small victories. Uh, most of these big movements, including the bad ones, were in fact built incrementally. So we need to do the same thing, keep going. Um, I've seen a lot of small victories in getting things like culturally relevant books into different classrooms. I feel like a stealth warrior today because they're gonna call it critical race theory when all it is is just people talking about their lives, but okay. <laughs> so go ahead and be a stealth warrior and don't forget the small victories. I've seen libraries saved. I've seen uh, children who were supposed to be failures 
end up being successes. I see it every day. It's still going on. Teachers are still teaching children true learning. Keep going. Don't forget the small stuff. All right. Thank you, people. As I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen. I'm never going on my mission. I'ma roll with what I'm giving. Got some ambition, this new addition, filling positions. Looking at the void in myself and feeling what's missing. Better watch the way you're going. Better go in the right direction. In the moment you're stressing, but you're gonna be counting blessings. And I know that for certain. Keep on working, open curtains. Haters swerving, cause they ain't ready for your final version. I'm never gonna give up, give up. Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up. Yeah. Cause this is my role, less camera action already